When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which Leeds fans cast their combined eye over goings-on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, the own goal of the podcast, better than nothing I suppose, and I'm joined by the Pascal Strick of the podcast, Joe Hill, young, hungry and putting in a performance when it is needed. And finally, the tactical approach to the Barnsley game of the podcast. A mess, constantly changing, but just about okay in the end. It's Darren Driver. Darren, how are you doing? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I slept I slept like a baby, actually, but but I did have some quite confused dreams, and I think that's an, almost entirely to do with, with Leeds v Barnsley last night. <laughs> Joe, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great, yeah. I'm feeling really, really good. Like I've woken up this morning, and I've looked at the table, and I can't quite believe it. Um, so after the confusion of last night and the sort of franticness, I've kind of settled this morning and I'm just really excited for the weekend and to see what happens. I think it was a, a masterstroke on our part to not record the podcast <laughs> yesterday. Uh, yeah. um, I'm feeling a lot better about the whole process of recording a podcast this morning. But um, before we get uh, wildly optimistic, that was horrible last night, right? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was something else. I mean... We'll, we're going to get into it, and there's a lot of people asking if it's our worst performance under Bielsa. Um, and quite frankly, I can't really remember a game like it. I think it, it's probably up there. Just the nerves when I was watching it was just ridiculous, and we had we had no control. Um, but we obviously it's just that cliche um, where it, you know it doesn't matter how how it goes in, doesn't matter how we get the three points. Um, so obviously we've uh, there's a huge positive there in that we did. F- we did come through. Yeah, everything I've come to to love and appreciate about this Bielsa Leeds team um, was was <laughs> conspicuously missing <laughs> yesterday, and it and it made for some some quite challenging flashbacks um, to. It, in in some ways, the game reminded me of the kind of end of Christian Christian scenario where we're still trying to play kind of nice football, but but it's just everything's kind of going wrong and the the shape and the structure of the team, team's completely falling apart. Now, obviously, this is a one off. We know this is a one off because it's only happened once in the two years Bielsa has been here. But it made for a distinctly uncomfortable ninety four, ninety six, or whatever it was minutes for sure. 
Yeah, I think there's a few things that I want to talk about in this respect because, um, you know, there's, there's, there's so much to take into account. I think a lot of people are sort of banking on us in coming coming out here and, and doing a sort of masterful um, uh, breakdown of what happened tactically. But just watching it back last, uh, this morning uh, and last night, I watched the first <laughs> I watched the first half last night and the uh, second half this morning, um, which was, again, a weird experience. But... Um, yeah, it was. There was so much going on. We've got Calvin Phillips out with an injury, so that already messes things up. You get um, Helder Costa getting injured forty six minutes into the game, um, and do you know at least tactically, I didn't actually think there was that much wildness going on. We started off with a three three one three. We ended up in a four one four one, and that was basically it. Yeah, in the first half, you had like the centre backs moving around a bit. Which I'm still not entirely sure why. But. No, I'm I'm fairly certain, John, that the that the players decided to move it to a four um, unilaterally, and then Bielsa and the coaching staff made them move it back to a three. I, I'm pretty sure that that that's the discussion that was happening from the sidelines. I, I don't think that Bielsa mandated a, a a change to a four at the back in the first half. Yeah, I don't know what I think about this because like, on my watching of it. Um, and I was very, I was very aware of the centre backs and, and what was going on with them when I was watching it back. Simply for this reason that I had no idea why. So, so at around thirty-five minutes, Berardi goes to a left back position, and the two other defenders move across one. So, so, so Ailing has been playing as a central in, in a three, <laughs> and um, <laughs> which I, no, I thought was fine. I thought it was fine. No, I, I, I was, I was terrified throughout of Ailing in the center of a three. I'll, if he's going to play centre back, I like him on the right of a three, definitely. Yeah, but, yeah. That, I mean, that was interesting. But then it's, it felt like for five minutes, Berardi went just switched places and went to the the left back position. And then he went back at around the 40th minute and then maybe three minutes before the end did a couple of minutes back in that slot, mm. um, which was very odd. But then, so so there was that. And then in the second half, we started off just playing a 4-1-4-1 straight from the, from the beginning with, I think, Dallas sort of taking the Calvin Phillips role. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And then not very long after, uh, Pascal Struick came on. Um because I think, um, yeah, we we lost we lost a huge amount of control with one with with um, Dallas in that in that uh, defensive position, but also um, we were sort of playing Hernandez. We played him out wide on the right pretty much, um, and we really lost a bit of control in the middle. Um, weirdly, because I didn't think Tyler Roberts had that good a game in the first half, but um, yeah. The, so the tactical change really was um, we had to respond to the Costa injury. We then had to respond to the lack of control in the middle. We brought on Pascal Struick, and then from there on, I just think it was panic. I think mm. we bottled it mm. um, yeah. majorly. Um, and this is something that I tweeted this morning from from my um, from, from the from the account um, using what um, Jamie Kemp had said actually on on LUA. FC blog but this is how it felt to me we that game was set up for us to just absorb pressure and then decompress quickly get the goal and then settle back Barnsley were going for it they I mean there was a few times where we were three or four on two yeah and we didn't even manage to get chances away and um that was what made me apoplectic yesterday is that we made it way harder than we needed to and then we started panicking and it just became as, as soon as we got turnovers in our own half we were just kicking along straight to one of their players 
over and over and over again. We invited more and more pressure. We did yeah. enough to to not give away chances, but I think we were lucky not to 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 concede. I think I agree. I think I think the biggest problem from from the point of view of our possession was that whenever one of our defensive players had the ball, and this was true throughout the ninety minutes, I think that that they were looking up for a pass, and all they could see were the numbers because the the, the midfield players were just running away from them and trying to trying to get away quickly, and there was no one to feed the ball into. So White was dropping too too deep and Click was going too far forward. Um, and he was kind of playing more or less as a second striker throughout. I mean, I don't know how many second strikers we had in that game yesterday, but it felt <laughs> like a lot. Um, so, yeah, I think that was a real problem. I think that under the pressure, I think our players lacked a bit of tactical intelligence in the moment and a bit of tactical awareness to kind of take control of it and go, well, actually, I'm not going to make that lung-busting run forward. I'm going to drop in and I'm going to give my, my defenders an option. Much like he, much like Klitsch had done at Swansea when he kind of took over the Calvin role and started dropping in and taking the ball off the centre-backs. So that's exactly what he needed to do yesterday, but it just didn't happen. And, you know, you have to give Barnsley credit because they... They pressed incredibly high and they were very brave in, in terms of the way that they kind of stuck to their um, own tactical plan and, and they put us under an incredible amount of pressure. So we've got a couple of questions from listeners. So Matt Robinson asks, do you think this is the most out of control Marcelo has seemed in a game? He seemed on the edge and tactically confused today. Um, Mighty White's pod um, said, was that Leeds' worst, worst performance under Bielsa? Was it the most disjointed tactically? What were we trying, failing to do? So Joe, what, what's your initial thoughts on that? I think Bielsa was basically trying to react to what Barnsley were doing. And Barnsley obviously had nothing to lose. They were just playing... It's like on FIFA when you just go all-out attack and, <laughs> you know, you just it's just ridiculous pressing and just, you know, leaving two, two defenders back and everyone else was basically just playing as an attacker. And I think Bielsa obviously likes to have that thing where there's three centre-backs for every two strikers or two centre-backs for a, a one one striker and so then when they started with three strikers and then you know towards the end when they're looking at four five six attacking players mm. I think that's sort of where the carnage came from is that Barnsley I mean it, you have to give them credit they, they did play really well and they, we really didn't deserve to win but I think it was more that Bielsa was trying to react to what Barnsley were doing and had had maybe never faced that kind of relentless attacking before or maybe he has but he just hasn't come up with a, a system to deal with it yeah I, I kind of thought that you know to, to the first question around did did Marcelo seem confused or on edge I would I wouldn't say that he seemed tactically confused because I think that would be incredibly insulting but but I think that what I would say is that I don't think his his thinking was as clear as it normally is and one example of that which I picked out yesterday was the fact that he was playing Berardi at left back in the second half when Dallas and Alioski were both on the pitch um, which seems to, to, to be a, a kind of yeah it, it seems to be not something he would ordinarily do and it's not something we would normally see so we, we've kind of effectively got three players playing out of position to, to um, and and also, I don't think it was the sort of game that I could see Pablo controlling at any stage. I felt like it was crying out for another midfielder to come and sit in in the middle. So I think Shackleton would have been the wiser choice at half-time rather than the 89th minute. Um, and, and he did seem on edge and under pressure, but I think that's kind of to be expected at this time of the season. You know, it's been it's been a long season. This nine-game burst has been incredibly intense and that everybody's given absolutely everything. So I think, it, I think it's reasonable to expect times when we look under pressure, when we look a bit out of sorts, when they look a bit disjointed. At the risk of sounding like a inveterate Bielsa stan, I think if you look at that game tactically and break it down, it's it's fine. 
there's nothing wrong with anything that we do. We start off in this three three one three, and it it worked. I think in the first half we were fine. We had a couple of defensive lapses, which happens. Um, I think the particularly the, the the Callum Brown chance was was the um, was the standout one for me. That was Dal- Dallas dithering on that one, wasn't it? Dallas was dithering about on the ball on that one, and, and yeah, that's, yeah, that's, they pressed us yeah, well. They, did, yeah. they pressed us well, and then Cooper hesitates tracking Brown. Yeah into the box and that gives him time and space but even still it was the, the chance itself I think was one Meslier did everything right yes, so did. it made it look lot, a lot less dangerous um, two Brown is very one-footed um, but you know that's that's sort of what happens and then the other one was was again Cooper being a little bit out of position on a on a corner which is and this is maybe something we should talk about later but I do feel as though when you're playing a high pressing team and you try and you do a man orientated um, uh, defensive structure. You're always just gonna. You're always gonna struggle. I think yeah. because you're, the the play, the opposition players are always gonna get a run on you. Um, I guess in general that that's true. So that was that. And but other than that, in the first half, we we controlled the game. We are passing. We passed way more than them. We had much more possession. We created nearly chances yeah. a few times yeah. which i think is important to 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 talk about there was a few times when when harrison got in behind the defense and put dangerous balls in and it could have gone either way uh, yeah. we got the goal i think you know deservedly in some sense in that we put the ball again we got into a dangerous situation put the ball into a dangerous spot and the defender had to do something with it um and unfortunately for him he he, he put it in fortunately for us so in the first half i think it was fine um the second half he then switches to a 4-1-4-1 and I think that's because he felt that maybe Ben White wasn't doing as well in that position so he wanted White in into back into his defensive uh, situation Um, and he wanted he wanted yeah Pablo on because Pablo's Pablo and um when that didn't work, he brought on Pascal Stroke, and that was it. That was the def- yeah. that was the tactical yeah. madness of yeah. what happened. That was, and I think in this sense, that's not on him. The issue, I agree with you, Darren, that you know, there's some some situations where you think is that is that the wisest thing to yeah. do? Is it wise to have Stuart Dallas as a as a holding midfielder? No. Is it wise having Berardi as a as a left back? No. But I think what Bielsa will have said is that in in any other circumstance, that would have been fine. Yeah. Um, we they were good enough to play in that position, and what's what's ha- happened is that the players themselves have have really just I don't want to say bottled it because I think that's unfair, but it was it's a huge amount of pressure, right? Yeah, and if that is our bottling it this season, yeah, exactly, then we've come away with the points. You know, la- last yeah. year we did well and truly bottle it, um, and so we're allowed to have one of those moments, and we still come away with the win this year. So I think it shows the difference in the in the squad this year and the mentality. Overall, I think you're right, John. I think it, it was a case of mental tiredness leading to physical physical lethargy, um, yeah. particularly in the midfield area. I thought Klitsch looked very leggy. I thought Dallas looked very leggy. Um, and neither of them demonstrated anywhere near the kind of normal levels of energy to get to get in behind, uh, to get to kind of do the defensive covering that they would ordinarily do. And mm. um, I thought that that really kind of left us in, in, in quite quite some difficult situations but like you say we didn't really give away a good chance in the second half at all so yeah I think it's fine no yeah and it's it's job done I I think one final thing I'd say is that I think the frustration for me is that it just seems so obvious how the game tactically should have proceeded in the second half to me 
that that's where my frustration was coming in. It was, and, and this is what I tweeted. I said, it felt to me like a, they're, they're pushing everything forward. You just need to be patient, get one good break, yeah. get the goal, put it to bed and then, and then calm down. Yeah. And we were really, really poor in a tra- attacking transition in the second half. We were. Now, that's partly because Costa and, and Harrison came off. But at the same time, there was, there was, there was a, a Pablo, a uh, pa- Patrick Bamford offside chance where he should never have been in an offside position. Um, there was a few times where where both Pablo and Bamford took terrible touches and we would have been in. Yeah. Um, we had the chance at the back post where it fell onto Bamford's right foot. Yeah. Um, and even still, I mean, he's still got an okay chance away. It, it would have been better had it been the other way around. But it was it was one of those games. And I think the longer that it went on and the more those sorts of things happened, the more panic we got. And then it was just a case of, oh, they keep coming at us. They keep coming at us. It feels like they're going to score. Yeah. And we just sort of got into this routine of winning the ball and just hitting it long. And it just we didn't have any sort of cohesion as a, as impressing up front um, on our own side that it just it just ended up being relentless pressure back 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 yeah. but like you say Darren there wasn't a huge there was the Corley Woodrow chance where he could have squared it yeah there's a I think a Connor Chaplin there was a chance where he could have had the ball from Styles, but Styles shot instead yeah. of laying it inside yeah um so we were lucky they panicked a little bit as well I think is the is the only explanation for that but <sighs> let's move on to the question then about winning playing poorly because David Martin says not to get too holistic about this but given some of the results early on like Derby and Swansea at home is any reasonable to assume he'd win a game playing poorly at some point no um, so is that is that a case of this is this what it is you know sometimes you ride your luck and I think maybe as as a Bielsa team we're so used to everything being either deserved <laughs> well all of our games almost being deserved it's it's I think there's two games this season where we've where we've been um, we've lost on XG as it were um, which is remarkable so there was two before this and I think even even yesterday the, the XG numbers were pretty close so Very it probably close. would have gone down yeah. as, as a draw so it's we've we've essentially had two games where we've deserved to draw on XG now that's take that with a pinch of salt obviously but that I think that means that we expect largely to 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 win playing well or lose playing well we don't lose you expect to win playing badly yeah I think we've banked enough luck over the, over the last two years to be able to get away with one result and one one victory where we play relatively poorly compared to our normal performance levels. If you think about Wigan scoring direct from a corner, yeah, and you can call that bad luck or you can call it Casillas' mistake, whichever you prefer. Um, but I think I think over the over the last couple of years we've been on the wrong side of that result so many times. I I I'm absolutely got no problem taking that as a, as a one off. Absolutely, and when you look at teams like Liverpool this year, I mean, maybe not after the restart, but they were just relentless, winning at Anfield 18, 19 games in a row. And some of those games, they just really, really didn't play well, but they're able to, to grind out the results. And I think it's a, it is a sign of a really good team if you, if you can do that. It doesn't happen very often for us, but I think we can all sort of relish the feeling of just getting an undeserved three points, because why not? Yeah, I think if it, if it was a regular occurrence that we play poorly and get away with a victory, as it has been at some points in the past, I'm thinking particularly about some points in the Monk season, I might feel differently about it because I think in those cases your performances catch up with you in the end. But but on you know for this one, yeah, we we played poorly once, we managed to get away with a one nil win. Happy days. One more thing on this, just before we move on to talk about other things, but um, I did notice that in the first half, Leeds outpassed Barnsley 264 to 151 so we were over 100 passes more than them in the first half in the second half Leeds 
only made 179 passes to Barnsley's 198, which I think really shows just how much we fell off in that second half. We were controlled in the first half. Yes, we gave up a few chances, but in the second half, there was just a lack of control that was completely worrying. Again, if you look at the tackles attempted in the first half versus the second half, we were pressing higher up the pitch. We were winning, um, well, Barnsley were winning tackles um, deep in their own half and and a lot of them. In the second half, they barely had to make any tackles in their own half and they were making tackles in our midfield area the whole time so yeah it was it was one of those one of those um things um right let's move on to a few other questions um we had a question from dan holtworth about um why didn't bielsa want another midfielder in january and i think that raises a, a question actually about the about the midfield and uh, also that i think the squad depth um i think we've already talked about how unappealing uh, a Dallas well Dallas in the midfield is I don't think anyone other than Bielsa really thinks there's any worth to that but um, I think this also comes down to the fact that we're missing players and you know we've we've really struggled in that central midfield uh, area to to justify playing anyone other than Calvin Phillips so um, yeah Darren we'll go with you on this well, is this an issue of, a, of, of having a weak squad and did we nearly pay the price for for not bringing in a midfielder in January I certainly don't think it would have done any harm to bring in, you know, a midfielder in January. I, I totally appreciate that Bielsa prefers to work with a small squad. I totally appreciate that the owners probably enjoy that about him because, uh, you know, they don't want to be spending too much on transfer fees and, and, and wages. Um, but but it's one of the things where, where I, although I trust him implicitly, um, and, and why wouldn't you after the two years we've had, that, that that's one of, the, one of the questions for me is that, that what, why haven't we got an extra first team ready body that we can put in in the midfield? Because time and time again, we've been short there. We've been trying to patch it up by playing, um, by playing Tyler Roberts there, by, you know, in my opinion, playing Pablo in the midfield is, is, is a bit of a patch up because as you know, I prefer him out wide. Um, and had Forshaw been fit, Pablo wouldn't have been playing there. So that, yeah, it really shows for me that, that either he's got to, to start using Shackleton and or Gotts more regularly, or we should have brought another body in. Um, and and my preference would have been for, for the second one. Hmm. Let's move on to talk about Pascal Strick, because I, I tweeted out yesterday that it was a really impressive performance for him, not least in the context that the last time he came on was right at the end of the Cardiff game. And he was, um, I think by many considered responsible for the final goal um, defensively. And um, yeah, I'd heard from, from sources at the club that, you know, that really, that really hit him. It was his debut and um, Leeds, Leeds had gone from a game where they were winning three nil to <clears throat> drawing three all. And uh, I think during the, during January, he was, he was quite keen to maybe move back to the Netherlands as a result of that. Um, so with that in mind as, as the context, he came on yesterday and was, uh, was, was brilliant. So um, who wants to give a glowing report of, of Pascal Struick's uh, defensive midfield debut? I think I've said before I, I've seen him play in the twenty threes a number of times, and every time and I know you can't really judge somebody on the twenty threes. I don't I don't think that's that's true, but what he has done is he's absolutely strolled through those games, head and shoulders above everybody else that I've seen on the pitch, and and um, I think that the the Cardiff performance, yeah. He got, you know, there were a couple of defensive mix-ups with Ben White, but I really don't think he particularly was at fault for that third goal. It was just, a, it was just a wonderful piece of skill and luck um, from Lee Tomlin. 
Yesterday, I thought he was exceptional. Choose for, there was, I think, there was one moment where he kind of gave the ball away in a slightly dodgy area right just after he came on. Um, but other than that, I thought he was absolutely flawless. I thought his passing was progressive. I thought he looked to to play the right kind of balls, the same sort of balls that Calvin would have been looking to play. I thought defensively, he added a lot in terms of his kind of reading of the game defensively, and also his kind of physical presence from set pieces really didn't go amiss, particularly when they were throwing quite. Quite a few corners in it as later on so all in all you know really good and 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 I have to say that I think that he's he did enough there to earn a start there in the next match whether that will happen or not you know I doubt it will to be honest but but I felt he more than did enough he was at least as good as Ben White there if not a little bit better so I think he's probably done enough to get a start under most managers there in the in the next match and the rumors that I heard this morning, whether that Bielsa considers him perfect for the Phillips role and, and sort of wants him to make it his own as a sort of backup player as well. So it will be, will be interesting, particularly I think in the in the Charlton game if we go in already promoted. Um, do we do we play Struick there from the off and see um, how he plays in a, a full game uh, without that sort of pressure on? Um, we got a couple of questions about this. Um, let's do the question from Wiggy, which is which is interesting. An obvious one, why Strick and not Shaq? I like Strick, don't get me wrong, but I felt it was throwing him in the lion's den a bit. Shaq has loads more experience. Any thoughts on this? I think it was probably to do with a, a physical presence. Um, I think we knew that Barnsley could be a threat from set pieces um, and, well, and from open play, really. But I think I think he just needed that physical presence in the middle um, just sort of dominating. I, I absolutely love Shackleton. I think he's brilliant, but I'm not sure if he's if he's made for that particular role in the Calvin Phillips role. I think there was one point when I did I did want Shackleton to come on maybe for for click, um, just to get a bit of pace um, and a bit of sort of nimbleness in the midfield. I thought we could have done with that. And actually, when Shackleton came on, he he only did sort of one thing, but. Um, he did drive up the pitch and he did win us a really important free kick. Um, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't have played him in that holding role. And I think Struik was a good decision in hindsight. I must admit at the time when it when it was happening, I was thinking, what the fuck's going on? Like, it was just <laughs> crazy. But I think, yeah, in hindsight, I can see why Bielsa did it. And Bielsa clearly knows a lot more than me. Yeah, I, th- I think it's about the tactical discipline that Struik brought to the role rather than anything in terms of f- ability because clearly Shackleton's got tons and tons of ability. Um, but but he is an A. He's, he's, he's not somebody who's just going to sit there and kind of p- pick the balls up off the centre-halves and, and kind of hold his positional discipline in terms of his man-marking role um, on, on their opposition player. So, yeah, all, all in all, really good. Mm. Yeah, and it was quite nice actually having someone with some kind of height on the field. Yeah. <laughs> we just have no one who has any sort of height. So it would be, it'd be really interesting for me, I think, for us to have you know, an over six foot um, central defensive midfielder. Um, that feels feels like it's like an interesting angle um, into this team. And, you know, I, I don't know what he's like offensively from from um, from set pieces, but I suspect he's probably more dangerous than the majority of our team. Um, I think he scored a few for the 23s perhaps this season. So um, again, that would, it'd be nice to have, it'd be nice to have someone who you can throw on and know that we, we might actually get a, a header on target from a set piece. Um but there we there we go. Um, John McGarvey asked um, a question about 
missing Phillips, uh, which I think ties in here. So he says Ben White was excellent at the defensive side of his midfield role, but do we think that we miss Phillips in the sense of the off- offensive link-up passes? And this is something that I mentioned in the um, tactics preview is that whenever we've played Ben White, I think if we've got an early goal and sat back, we've been fine. But when it comes to actually... Um, yeah, uh, um, transitioning down the field, he's he doesn't add a huge amount. Um, he's a great centre back. He's not so great a central defensive midfielder for me in terms of the system that we play. Yeah, he plays like Virgil Van Dijk at centre back and Dick Van Dijk in midfield is how I kind of <laughs> see it really. Um, yeah, uh, I don't think there are many teams in the country, and I include the Premier League in this, that wouldn't miss Calvin Phillips. I I think that that's you know absolutely stands to reason that if you take a player as as good in in his position out of out of the game and with the, you know his kind of range of passing, his his tactical intelligence, his kind of physicality, of course you're going to miss him, and and of course he's going to be difficult to replace. Mm. We've got a question from Martin A. Hagen, who talked about the using youth, actually. Um, and he says, how are the youngsters like Strake and Shackleton fitting into Bielsa's future plans? They look like decent players, but I'm puzzled how the youngsters only get some minutes in sporadic occasions. Why haven't they played more in a season where loads of games would suit them? Um, Joe, have you got any thoughts on this? I think for the, for the uh, question of why haven't they played more, I think it's just that Bielsa is Bielsa and he just would play the same starting 11 every single week if he if he could and if it wasn't for injuries and suspensions and stuff um how are they fitting into his plans i think something that that is quite important to this is the fact that they've um agreed to keep the five subs rule next year which i'm pretty sure they have confirmed um and so obviously nine options on the bench there um i think that Probably you you might see uh, Struik and Shackleton staying on just for that reason because Shackleton. Well, I'd love to see Shackleton stay on, especially if Forshaw has another injury or Click gets injured. I think Shackleton's really good backup, and I'd, like like we were saying earlier about the the Charlton game, you know, it could be that Struik gets some some minutes then or gets ninety minutes and really proves himself that he can be one of those nine on the bench. Um, and it won't just be sort of players like Stevens and Gotts who just really haven't proven themselves at all. What I find really interesting about Bielsa is that one, there's the sort of like narrative that he is good with youth players, um, and I think that's sort of largely true in in at least if you look back in in terms of uh, his history. But I think the thing that the thing that worries me is that, um, and I've mentioned this before on podcasts, but he's never done more than two seasons at a club. And it's impossible to talk about youth development. And, and there's a difference between developing young players individually and then youth development as a whole. And I don't think Bielsa is particularly good at the second, uh, or the first one, sorry, where where you're taking young players and then bringing them through a system. But partly because, like you say, he would start the same starting 11 every week if he could. But also partly because he's he's not been at a club's long enough to actually need to do that. He's never had to worry about squad churn uh, because he's had two seasons where he's had a really good season usually and then sort of tailed off in the second one because he's still trying to play the same same sort of squad. And um, that's something that maybe worries me going into the Premier League because, one, I think it's meant that we've gone into... We're, we're going to go into the Premier League with a squad that is has holes in it. I think there's issues with our squad that I don't think will be fixed. 
I think, we're, for example, we've missed a central midfielder definitely this season. And I think the solution that we're going to get isn't going to be, let's bring someone in in the summer. It's been, oh, Pascal Strick can maybe play his cover for Calvin. So let's go with him, which is like absolutely fine. I have no problem with that. But I think when you start cutting corners like that, you end up with games like we had yesterday where suddenly half of our first 11 are injured or or, or yeah, can't can't make it onto the pitch, and suddenly we we just look like we have no one who can control a game, and and we're sort of filling square pegs into round holes and stuff like that all over the place. So I think maybe maybe that's a bit of a dampener, but um, I do have worries about that. Uh, Darren, what what are you? Yeah, because I'm thinking, and you know, you, we, we've had this conversation quite a few times, John, haven't we? On both on 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 the chat group and 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 things mm. around development, and I suppose the way I think about it is that I don't doubt that every single player that that Bielsa's has worked with over the last two years, including the young players, is a better footballer than they were at mm-hmm. the start of this. But yeah. the young players are not established first team presences, and I think that's more the problem, isn't it? Is that it's that thing about getting match minutes rather than just tra- rather than just being better in training, which is kind of you know kind of neither here nor there really, and doesn't really benefit the club in any meaningful mm-hmm. way. Um, so I, I totally agree, and, and you know whether they fit into Bielsa's future plans or not, we've got no idea what Bielsa's future plans are. We we we've only got hearsay that he'll be around for the next season. I wouldn't put it past him to to not be here next season. I genuinely fully hope that he is but but we've got no idea what his future plans are because as you say he's never been at a club for longer than two seasons before so it'd be really interesting to see what happens in the summer hmm. I yeah and to add to that I was, I was going to say you know the squad I consider to be the responsibility of Victor Orta as well mm. and I know that Bielsa is going to come into every meeting and be like I'm happy with what we've got this was that's what happened when he arrived at Leeds everyone thought right who's he going to buy and he just basically came in and said I'm happy with the squad that I've got um, just let me coach them but I do think that there's a huge amount of responsibility that Victor Orta has as well his responsibility is to keep that squad in good condition because we don't want uh, we don't want to get to a position where Bielsa leaves we bring in a new manager and suddenly the manager's like I think half of this squad a toilet uh, that's not what you want you need to have you need to have this understanding that the 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 longevity of the squad is going to be something that you have to consider apart from someone like Marcelo Bielsa because the squad are always going to be there we're not going to sack the squad um, but there may be a point where Bielsa leaves um, and I think yeah that's that's sort of one um caveat I would probably put there is that maybe with Victor Orta I would want him to be a little bit more um, forceful in terms of saying well I know you don't want this player but I'm going to bring him in because my squad needs it and I feel as though maybe that's what they should have done with the with the central midfield thing but again who who knows with it with that um, it, it could be the case that they are as happy to save money as Bielsa is to not bring anyone in um, just Quickly on tiredness, um, Liam Broxham said, I know you don't have access to the running stats, but we look tired today. Uh, any thoughts on that? And I know, I mean, post pa- pa- um, Patrick Bamford's post-match um, interview, he said that they were all exhausted. Um, obviously, the Bielsa burnout stuff is going to come through. But I mean, this is pretty uh, remarkable in terms of if you look at how many games have been played in how many days. And, you know, they've got two days to rest <laughs> slash train before the, the, the derby game, which is, again, unprecedented. So what's, what's your thoughts on the tiredness side of things, Joe? I wouldn't say that it's Bielsa burnout. Um, I think the players are, are fine and I think the players are fit. Um, I think it's more just the schedule thing. I think they really did look tired. But I believe that Swansea is our furthest away trip, um, at least in sort of hours travelling. Um, and we have to remember that they, they've come 
on the back of that trip that Barnsley had more rest than Leeds did between uh, their previous game and yesterday's game. So I think you have to just give the, the players a bit of credit and just allow them this game and yeah, we I don't think well we're gonna we're gonna preview the Derby game, but I don't think Derby will set up the same as Barnsley. They won't be going all guns blazing, and I think the players hopefully should have a bit more of a comfortable game. I, I wonder how many of them were carrying knocks too. I I, I didn't particularly think Berardi, Dallas, or Klitsch looked especially comfortable in their running. Particularly, I thought they they looked a bit a bit heavy. So I'm just wondering, yeah. I'm, it wouldn't surprise me at all, given given the intensity with which we play. We're, we're bound to pick up a higher le- number of knocks than, than other teams, but I wonder if that contributed to it too. Right, before we move on to the derby preview, we do need to talk about Kiko Casilla. A quite controversial for him to be included in, in the bench, I think. Um, my own personal take on this is that I find it inconscionable that we can take the knee before kickoff um, and and uh, support the Black Lives Matter movement with the uh, with the inference that Jonathan Lecco's life is not important. At the same time, I find that inconscionable. And I think it's important that we talk about that uh, before moving on. I don't want to make this a big thing, but um, yeah, Darren, I know you've had some thoughts about this. So yeah, I just was hugely disappointed and uh, to see him involved. I think I think the the club throughout have been absolutely piss weak on this matter. And and you know, in in my view, he should have been shoved shoved out of the door as soon as humanly possible. Whether that be through termination of his contract or through getting rid of him in January. Um, I was I was really hopeful that that Bielsa would stick with um, Miyazak on on, uh, on the bench um, and yeah I was a bit gutted. That's 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 all I can say is that I was a bit gutted. I, I think it's it's hugely incongruous to to kind of be, mm-hmm. be publicly banging the drum about about Black Lives Matter and to and to, to be taking the knee and 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 then by the same token to have um, Casilla in and around the squad. And you know, I see a lot of a lot of people still defending Casir on Twitter, and you know, they're kind of entitled to their view. But but what's clear to me is that a lot of those people simply haven't read the report um, and and the findings because I I don't see how it would be possible to read those and to still come to a position of defending Kiko Casir after that. Um, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you want to say anything, Joe? No, just I want to just echo what you guys have said. I absolutely agree with what both of you have said, and I think that I'm quite shocked, especially given um, his suspension and then the lockdown, um, that they didn't just say to Kiko, just go and go back to Spain and or you know and just stay there and don't bother coming back. And then I think that it would have been, it wouldn't have had to been a, a big issue um, yesterday. It would have just been that. Kiko's Kiko's back home. He's not no longer with the squad anymore, and I think everyone would have applauded uh, that decision. And then maybe uh, after the games have been played, the club can make a proper statement. Yeah, I did. I, I mean, people say oh, we don't want to make any sort of fuss about this. We don't want any distractions. But if if Melier gets injured yesterday, then Kiko comes on, and that distraction is there. And and so putting someone on the bench, I think, is as much inviting distraction as anything yeah the club created the distraction by having him involved and I think that's the yeah. that's the key point isn't it really yeah I know that you've mentioned this Darren but I think it's important to say you know 
um, regardless, some people will have different opinions to us. That's fine. Um, but I do think that if you do have a problem with the way that the club has dealt with Kiko Kassir, then get in touch with them. Tell them that you're unhappy with the way that they've dealt with things because um, there's no, there's nothing about being a fan that says that you have to just um, endorse everything that the club does. The club will make mistakes. They will do things wrong. And it's up to us as fans to let them know how we feel. Um, and, you know, yeah, maybe they will ignore us all. But I think, you know, if a, a huge amount of fans get in touch with them and say, we're not happy with how you've dealt with this situation then hopefully in the future they will will take notice of that yep they'll be getting a letter from miffed of beeston this week (laughs) (laughs) hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing i love that luxury quality within reach go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com style Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Let's move on to talk about Derby County. So this week, I was lucky enough to talk to Ram Srivanas, um, who a lot of you might know is one of the co-founders of Market Insights, uh, about Derby County. So this is the conversation that we had. So I'm joined by Ram Srinivas, co-founder of Market Insights, a football consultancy service, and someone who's been following Derby County for a while now. Ram, how are you doing? Hello, John. I'm doing okay. I'm very glad to be talking to you today. So let's talk a little bit about Derby County. You've had a few games to assess what post-lockdown Derby looked like. It's been a bit of hit, been a bit hit and miss, I think, um, because obviously when you first came back, everyone was raving about you. But obviously, it's tailed off a, a little bit now, and uh, the win yesterday pretty much puts playoffs out of the question. So, how have you looked on the field since lockdown? Yeah, the the funny thing about this Derby side is they, it's it's not like they've really tailed off. In the last three games, I suppose that when you have a squad makeup and a starting 11 makeup similar to what Derby does, which basically has a number of young players in it these days, there are, I think, at least three or four academy grads in every line of the season. I mean, uh, every lineup in this mini season, rather. So post um, post restart. But the thing is, they have looked exactly the way the results look on paper. They've looked really, really good in spells within games, and they've also had pretty shocking pedestrian spells as well. So there were moments like that against Millwall where they displayed absolute dominance and scored some nice goals, and then there were there were some shocking defensive lapses which caused them to concede the two goals. And similar stories against uh, Reading and Preston North End. But you got the feel that the the relative inexperience of some members of the squad was beginning to pull them in various directions towards the Preston game because I think that was basically just a Rooney free kick and then they lived off that for the rest of the game and didn't play so well in the second half. And I think the, in the last three or four fixtures, I think it's just a matter of them playing teams that have been continually better than them this season. 
So with that in mind, how disappointing is it to be out of the playoffs? Is is Was there the sense that, you know, maybe they could have just done it by having, like you said, they've looked really, really strong in, in places since uh, the restart. Was there the feeling they could maybe get through the playoffs if they just managed to get there? I kind of had them as dark horses for the playoffs, even when they were on that really good run of form. But the thing is, throughout the season, I don't think, I can only speak for myself, but I didn't expect them to really make the playoffs because a lot has changed since last season and they've had a number of issues to deal with beginning from Lampard's rather unceremonious, untimely departure. It could have been done a lot earlier. So right, going from there to you know what happened off the field with Lawrence, Keogh and Bennett and just a, a general squad churn compared to last season, I don't think the expectation was right, right up there for them to be in the playoffs and contest for a contest for promotion yet again. So I think that the fact that they came this close to making the playoffs and largely just lost it in the last three games is okay. For me, that's okay. Because all things considered, there are they lost they lost Mason Mount, Fikayo Tomori, Harry Wilson, Bryson left as well, Scott Carson left. And they've brought in they've brought in players to replace them and they've also brought in a number of young players who are practically like new signings, I guess. So Basically, they've kind of had to start from scratch again. So I think it's okay. I don't think many Derby fans will be too disappointed with the fact that they're not in the playoffs now. And to, to be honest, I don't think the club is really in the position to go up at this point in time as well. I think it would probably end like another Norwich City. How different do Derby look under Philip Koku to how they looked under Frank Lampard? There are differences. Overall, looking at the style of play, and I think stats will back me up on this, I think the basic facets of the team that Lampard was building have been retained, which is very loosely, very, very loosely speaking. They still they still press a decent amount, although not as intense as under Lampard. Lampard was slightly more gung-ho with that aspect and probably played a slightly higher line as well. And But they also like to have the ball a lot, like Lampard did. I think the main differences would be that Lampard's side started off the season closer to what Koku is playing at the moment. But then Lampard kind of departed to a style where they began to go a little more direct. And in attack, they attacked in such a manner that it left them very, very vulnerable defensively. So I think Koku is a little more conservative than that. And I think that in terms of coherency as well, Koku's side looks a little more coherent than Lampard. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you, among other neutral observers last season, observed that Lampard's side was, a lot of it was based around individuality of the attacking players. And there were a lot of punts from Harry Wilson that ended up flying into the goal. But I think there are clearer patterns to Philip Koku's game, although there is a lot to be improved. I think that they still lack coherency in the final third at times. But there are there are very promising signs, such as when they have they have lots of sequences when they build up very well under pressure. And they also have moments where the transition from defending to reaching the final third is very smooth and only involves an exchange of a few passes. So there are specific patterns that I can see in Cuckoo's Derby County that I didn't necessarily see in Lampard's. Lampard's was it was very it was very evident that he was a manager finding his feet in the game as well because his, his team played like that. They had a few basic principles. Okay, we'll press a lot. We will attack in a very swashbuckling manner. And that was the way the team played. But this team is is a lot more, is probably a lot more calculated than, than Lampard. So I'd say that's a good sign. And that reflects with, uh, you know, Koku's career being the way it has been so far. So looking at Derby's matches, Koku has them playing largely in 43-1. Yeah. Uh, what does he try and get his players to do within that formation? 
Well, I kind of expected him to go for a 4-3-3 initially, but then I think he has settled in a 4-2-3-1 eventually. And the plan was to have Wayne Rooney at the number 10, but because Christian Bielik got injured, I think his plans changed a little. So you you have a back four that plays relatively high, and the fullbacks venture forward quite often. So fullbacks have actually been one of the primary attacking outlets from Coco's side from since the start of the season. So they're quite important. They, they push high and the, front, the the attacking band of three that play behind the striker sit quite narrow. So these days, that's usually Louis Sibley at number 10, uh, Tom Lawrence on the left, and it, it varies between Dwayne Holmes. And, well, that position has kind of been a mixed bag so far because sometimes Holmes is in there, sometimes Waghorn is in there. But the principle is the, that attacking band of three, that triumvirate kind of plays pretty narrowly and looks to receive between the lines and turn past defenders and look, looks to combine in a fluid manner. So they interchange positions a lot. And sometimes these attacking players will drop deep to help maintain build up with like one touch passes. And that leaves a lot of space for fullbacks to venture on either flank. So they go quite high and they look to play crosses as accurately as possible. But that's where I have my biggest issue with, with Coco's side is that I think the the precision of their crossing play is very, very far apart from someone like Leeds United, that they're worlds apart. So I think... It's it's not it's not all like that. Of course, they do they do mix their play up a lot. There are a lot of runs in behind by the number ten as well, which is evidenced by Louis Sibley when he's playing there. But on the whole, I'd say I'd say that would be it. The the two the two defend the two defensive midfielders, so to speak, do not venture forward very often. Usually, there's one that sits deeper than the other these days. That's Rooney, and there's also Max Bird, who isn't exactly a box to box, but he, he he can he can shuttle between the boxes, but. They're both kind of metronomic sort of players who will look to create switches of play and find passes that break the lines. So it's, uh, as I described, it's not as gung-ho as Lampard's, you know, one number six and two attacking number eights. So in a nutshell, I'd say that was that. But uh, another thing was probably Coco's usage of a target man. I think he used Luke de Jong similarly in a similar capacity while he was at PSV. And he uses Chris Martin, who's been brought back from the from the dead, so or so it seems. So Chris Martin is someone who can drop very very deep at times, and basically he wants someone who can hold up play, but is also of a technically decent level, so as to bring the three attacking players in behind him into play. I suppose that covers all of the aspects. So in terms of Wayne Rooney, how well would you say that the Wayne Rooney experiment has worked at Derby County? Well, it was something that I was quite skeptical of since the very start for both on and off the field reasons but on the whole i'd say it's been good in some aspects most aspects rather because he's been a huge huge influence on all of these young players that are brought through into the side because you look for tidbits that have come from every single one of max bird louis sibley jason knight even Jaden bogle and i presume the rest of the kids that are training with the first team as well he has been a huge influence for them and i'm sure that it must be quite inspiring for them to go into training with someone who has been a legend of english football every day so in that sense obviously that intangible that Rooney has brought has been very valuable given the given the situation of the squad. Additionally, at a time where the club has lost a leader in terms of Richard Keogh and 
well, Tom Huddleston was kind of questionable in that whole incident as well. But in such an uncertain time, I think Rooney also coming in and becoming captain has also been galvanizing. On the field, obviously, he's brought a lot of quality on the ball. He, he's, he, he's mentally usually a step ahead of the rest, even though his body's kind of playing catch up. And he plays a lot of beautiful switches of play and has opens up opens up a lot of angles. So in that way, so th- those are probably all the positives. If I had to if I had to think of any negatives at all, it would probably be that the midfield loses a lot of mobility when it's him and Max Bird playing in there, and the team becomes very very susceptible to sides that will look to hit them on transition and on the counter, such as oh, in case in point being Nottingham Forest. So that's one thing. And the other is, I suspect that, or well, this is purely speculation for me, but I'm not sure how Koku is going to play it in terms of playing time for Rooney next season. He's obviously a huge, huge figure at the club already. And he is, of course, on a decent amount of money as well. I just don't know how he's going to manage his minutes going forward next season, because obviously he's not getting any younger. But I think in games such as yesterday and probably the Brentford game as well, it seemed as if the the overall tempo of the game was kind of passing him by. And I think there will be times when Rooney will have to be benched and out of the side for a while. And I don't know I don't know how that plays in dynamics-wise, just given the whole nature of his move and who he is. So that that's just probably the only murky area that I say regarding Rooney at Derby. But yeah, overall, there are a lot of positives. So I'd say overall, it's gone well. You've already mentioned this a little bit, but um, Derby obviously have a mixture of older and younger players. How would you say the squad's looking uh, in the long term? Um, You've mentioned already that it's probably wouldn't have been great for them to go up this season. So um, would you say this is a squad which has still got a a bit of work to do with it? Yeah, I, I think personally, I think it needs a lot of work. They need to Firstly, they need to sign a goalkeeper, I reckon, because Ben Hamer and Keller Rose have both played north of 20 games this season and neither have inspired confidence, or so I'd say. One is a better shot stopper, one is probably better with the ball, but then they have moments where they're very, very shaky. So I think that's just one one out of a few positions that Derby needs to strengthen a lot. And so there's goalkeeper, there is probably centre-back, because you have Curtis Davies, who is 35, and Craig Forsyth playing there in some matches and Matthew Clark is obviously on loan and he's going to go back so center back is one place I think full backs they're sorted because they have they have Jaden Bogle and Max Lowe in their midfield they're sorted because they have a number of good players coming through in that position and I think the next most problematic area is probably those wide attacking positions because I think Florian Josef Zun has it's it's safe to say that he hasn't been very good in his time at Derby County I'd expect him to leave if an offer came in any sort of offer and Tom Lawrence is very, very hit or miss. So I think in this window, Derby would definitely need to add three, four quality players. And they don't they don't necessarily have to be experienced pros who've been there done it types. Even if it even if they were like smart deals from mid table sides in even foreign leagues or something like that, the way Brentford have operated recently in the market or good value from uh, League One and League Two, I think their squad would be stood in a very good stead for the next four or five years. And that's considering that in this time, in this period of time, they might have to sell one of Bogle or Lowe or Sibley, Bird, Knight. So all things considered, there are older players to be phased out um, who, who I mentioned, such as Davies and Malone and probably Forsyth. So there, there will be there will be a gradual squad churn. I don't think it'll be 
as drastic as uh, Rawat to Lampard or Lampard to Koku. But I think there will be more of a gradual churn over the next two years. And there will be a lot of young players coming through. And I think maybe after two years, the squad will finally be stabilized. And I think that's around when I'd expect Derby to actually be pushing for promotion. Let's look forward then to the game on Sunday. How would you say Derby are looking injury-wise at the moment? Injury-wise, actually, apart from, I think, Christian Bielik and Dwayne Holmes being in and out of the side, I mean, Bielik is obviously a long-term problem. Holmes and Jack Marriott are, you know, here and there with their fitness. But apart from that, it's just mostly been suspensions that have been causing them problems, really. Because Martin Waghorn got sent off, and then Tom Lawrence got sent off, and that was kind of annoying for them to deal with. But largely, I think injury-wise, they're doing okay. Apart from those names that I mentioned, so basically, basically Dwayne Holmes and Bielik, who's a who's a long-term absentee, and Wisdom, who had something quite unfortunate happen to him. There, I think everyone's fit. So Koku does have a decent amount of players to choose from, assuming Waghorn returns from his suspension. Do you think that Koku is going to go with youngsters for the last two games of the season? I know that Ryan Conway tweeted out yesterday that someone had asked him whether or not he was going to use these last two games as a as a chance to to do a little bit more development with youngsters. But what, what's your take on that? I think he will definitely use youngsters because that's sort of a clear direction that the club want to go in if indications from owner Mel Morris or anything to go by. And he has had a few new faces on the bench in recent games so to speak, such as uh, Jordan Brown and Jamal Hector Ingram, who is slightly older at 21, but he did get his debut. And there is Morgan Whitaker, um, a wide attacker who has made 15 appearances this season, uh, largely off the bench, but will probably be involved in the squad in a more prominent role going forward next season. So I think now they don't really have much to play for. So I don't see why Koku wouldn't get the likes of Jordan Brown and Whitaker and Hector Ingram and possibly maybe involve another couple of players from the academy setup. There are there are a couple of players who are on the fringes, such as um, Festier Bossele and Archie Brown, two very, very, very talented players who were part of that uh, UEFA Youth League run recently. So I think they might be involved as well. It's really, it's really the perfect time to even, even further reinforce the fact that young players have a pathway at Derby County. In addition to seeing what some of them can do in the senior setup with, you know, pretty low risk, high reward kind of situation. Let's talk about the the lineup in particular on Sunday. How do you expect the lineup to go? I don't think it will be too different from what we've seen. Well, Jaden Bogle sitting out from Max Lower right back was a bit of a surprise against uh, against Cardiff City. So, but I do think that he will return for this game. So I'm expecting Keller Rose to continue in goal because he made a couple of decent saves against Cardiff, which is more than Ben Hamer has shown recently. So that's Rose in goal, Jaden Bogle right back, Matthew Clark. And, well, Matthew Clark and probably George Evans at centre-back. Max Lowe, a left-back. Midfield axis of Wayne Rooney. Max Bird as per. And in the attacking band, I expect Sibley, Lawrence and Jason Knight with probably Morgan Whitaker to replace one of them uh, in the going forward and probably Chris Martin to start. So I think lineup-wise, it won't be too dissimilar from anything we've seen recently. But if, if, if anything were to be different, that might be a, probably a youngster coming on slightly earlier in the game or probably a different face coming off the bench. That's where I would expect, really. I'm always interested in the sorts of players that the opposition fans are wary of when they face Leeds. Who do you think is going to cause problems for Derby this weekend? It's a name that you must have heard a lot of in recent <laughs> times. That's Louis Sibley, of course. He, 
I, f- I feel as if he's being touted to be an exceptional, exceptional talent already, which might be too early doors for that, considering he just played about eight or nine games. But he is definitely one to look out for. He just, he really burst out onto the scene with a hat trick against Melwall. And he's got a couple of assists as well. But I think he's very much the mold of player that, you know, all, all youth bias and derby bias aside can actually hurt Leeds United as a team. Because would you agree that you have had problems with players like maybe Iberici as a who can receive on the half turn and break lines very easily? I mean, that's that's something that I observed when QPR were playing Leeds. Sibley is one of those guys who can receive uh, on the half turn in the half spaces and look to break lines very, very easily. He's a very, very dynamic player, drops into the channels very often as well. So that's he's a he's a hard one to keep track of. Even what Callum Phillips probably isn't playing, but yeah, wh- whoever whoever plays at defensive midfield that day. So Sibley is definitely one, and the other is probably Max Bird, who is in a slightly more reticent role, of course, playing further back. But I think he's one to watch out for as a as a talent in general because he can retain the ball in high pressure as well and that will be important because Leeds obviously press in a very effective manner I'd say those two Max Bird and Louis Sibley and the other way around which of the Leeds players should cause problems for, for Derby in this game ah Leeds Listen, whenever <laughs> I watch Leeds it's like it's like going and attending a college lecture on football because <laughs> <laughs> you know Pielsa's system it's it's just like footballing education, basically. So whenever I watch Leeds, it's the system that I look out for. But then if I had to if I had to pinpoint like one or two players, it would probably be... So my favorite players on the Leeds side, one is obviously Pablo Hernandez. That man is in in a different... I don't know, he's just on a different level to most players in the championship. Amazing longevity, amazing impact just overall in a game. He can turn a game at the drop of a hat. And yeah, Pablo Hernandez is obviously one who can do anything if he feels like it. And the other one is Ben White, who is such a such an elegant player. Have you seen that clip doing the rounds of uh, Van Dyke recently when someone was chasing him and he just, you know, he, he kind of cushioned a long aerial ball down with his head and he just turned an attacker very easily. I think Ben White did something similar in Leeds' last game. And I was like, oh my God, he's, he's just such a graceful player. <laughs> there are, unfortunately, there are no clips of him uh, doing the rounds, but yeah, Ben White is just so elegant, so good to watch in every every aspect. He's another one that I would always look out for when watching. Yeah, it's it's incredible having a defender who is going to take a like you say take a touch and try and play the ball out rather than just put it straight into touch, which is a lot of well a lot of I think even Premier League centre backs would probably do in that situation. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's it's great having him. Um, right, let's talk about how you expect the game to unfold. I don't ask for predictions because <laughs> you know predictions are predictions, but feel free to give one if you want. But how do you expect the the game to unfold on Sunday? I don't think Chris Martin will score a last cap winner. <laughs> There's that. I think Derby will look better than some people would expect them to look mm-hmm. because I know Leeds and uh, West Brom are very, very different teams, and even even Brentford. But Derby generally looked a lot better against those sides than I expected them to. So I expect Derby to have a spell early on in the game where you might think that they really haven't woken up on the day of the match. But then I expect them to find their way back in some way and probably see a, a respectable amount of the ball even as far as as far as it can get against a BLSA side. So I don't, I don't think they'll be I don't think they'll be pushed over or anything like that. But I think yeah, at the end of the day, it, it will be a pretty comfortable win for Leeds if uh, Patrick Bamford decides to wear the right boots or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, I just, yeah. 
long story short, I think Darby will probably put up a fight, and they won't look like they won't look hapless or anything. But at the in the end, I think Leeds will just be too good for them because it's it's like the whole promotion campaign is reaching its culmination, and I'm sure the players will be super super motivated. It won't be like the playoff final last year when maybe they would have been slightly crestfallen and not having automatic promotion or something like that. And I think I think it's a wholly different headspace, a different set of circumstances. So yeah, they they'll have fire in their bellies. Derby also don't have much to play for. So yeah, uh, <laughs> Leeds Leeds will probably win, but I, I just I I don't think it'll be embarrassing or anything. Well, Ram, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. How should the listeners uh, follow your stuff if they want to? You can follow me on Twitter if you like. My 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 Twitter at is really quite strange. So you can <laughs> probably just look at it in the tweet that these guys are going to send out or something like that. But yeah, you, you can follow me on Twitter. I tweet a lot of random things. But more importantly, you might want to follow at Inside Market, which is a football analytics consultancy firm that I am part of. We work within the game and help our clients make the best use of data. So for uh, more data-driven insights and actual decent content, instead of my <laughs> incessant rants and incoherence, you might want to follow at Insight MRKT on Twitter. Cool. Well, it's been great chatting, as I said. Have a great day, Ram. Thank you so much. So that was Ram Srivanas from Market Insights talking about Derby County. Uh, Darren, what did you make of that? Well, the, the first thing that I thought about it was that um, if he thinks Leeds crosses are good, I'd, I'd be absolutely <laughs> very interested to see how, how appalling the Derby crossing is. Um, yeah, I, I, it was really interesting because um, I'd, I'd noted uh, Philip Koku's comments about um, putting the younger players in and and I'd be very interested to see what happens um but I've really enjoyed the bits I've seen of, of Sibley I've, I've not watched a huge amount of of Derby but he looks incredibly dangerous and I think I think we're going to need to be very watchful of him and whoever ends up in the Calvin role um on Sunday is really going to have their hands full with him I think mm. Joe how are you feeling about the Derby game I'm feeling quite good about it I think I'm like Darren said I, I did see that Koku said he would play the youngers and uh Ram thought the same thing and that just yeah that that obviously makes me feel like we've got a, a big chance of getting some points from the game um it was quite interesting to hear him talk about Rooney as obviously that's been um a massive thing for derby this year and i've i have seen a, a quite a bit of derby this uh, this season and particularly after lockdown and i think Rooney has looked way off it really i think he's mm. his his passing can be incredible um and obviously, he's done some work uh, in the in the dressing room in sort of getting everyone motivated and keeping everyone not, uh, you know, keeping everyone motivated. But I think in the past few games, he's he's looked completely off it, and he's been dropping as a third centre back at times. And I'm I'm really not concerned about um, Wayne Rooney unless we give away a free kick right on the edge of the box, in which case it's yeah. don't say that, fingers. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that is probably Rooney's one upside at the moment. But um, in terms of in terms of the game itself, how I mean, obviously Derby aren't going to come out and press like Barnsley, and uh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the, they do seem to be the sort of team that will come out and play a style of play that suits us very well. Um, 
So how are we feeling about the way that the game will feel different to the to the last time? Um, and do you think that do you think we go out there and just try and play for the win, or do you think we sort of sit and and we're a little bit more solid and just try and just try and drag ourselves over the line? Do you think there'll be any sort of nerves coming into it again, Darren? I think it really depends what happens over the next couple of days. I mean, I've tried very hard not to pay any attention whatsoever to to Brentford and West Brom, but but you know they they've both got got. You know, reasonably well. I think the West Brom game is, is is quite difficult, and that's today. And that that could see that could see the kind of derby game almost become an irrelevance. But I think, irrespective of what happens anywhere, we will play for a win because that's how Marcelo Bielsa sets his sides up. I don't think there'll be any huge tactical difference in our approach. The only thing that could play into it is that is whether the the players tense up in in a way that's similar to the the way they did yesterday, and whether they play with tension and fear, which which is not something we're used to seeing, but certainly something that I think contributed to yesterday. I think we have to remember that the, the Derby County players, as much as they might be up for playing Leeds with what happened last year and everything, um, they're, it's, it's, to drop another cliche, they're, they're going to be on the beach already. You know, they're, just not, they're not going to want to get injured. They're not going to want to get any sort of red card or anything. I think they're just going to play quite conservatively and and obviously the young the youngsters will be up for it. It'll be a chance for them to prove themselves. But I think I, I trust Leeds to, to to dominate this game um, in the same way that we've dominated plenty of games this season um, and get the three points and get the um, you know the champions medal. Yeah, my my one abiding memory of the game at Ellen Road is just how poor by, um, Derby were at playing out from the back and how often we caught them out with the press and. I'm hopeful that they haven't improved in that area at all because there'll be a lot of joy for us to take from that, if so. Yeah, there seems a lot about the game that should suit us. I feel like Derby play a sort of fairly structured 4-2-3-1. Yeah, they've got um, that, that attacking band of three who are exciting. Um, they play quite narrow and then they try and get their fullbacks high. And like with a double pivot that, that has... Wayne Rooney in it you know everything is in our favour they're going to have their, their creativity comes through their their fullbacks getting high um, so there'll be space in behind to attack there um, and yeah the, the, the central midfield situation is is an ageing Wayne Rooney and, and Max Bird I think will play there as well but I, there's so much really about about Derby that seems exploitable in a way that wasn't against Barnsley that it's hard not to feel sort of fairly confident that we will at least get a point um, um, on 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 the on the road there, so yeah, it should should be a, a good game, hopefully. Right? Has anyone got anything else they want to say about the Derby County game? No, just looking forward to it. Um, hoping that it's all confirmed and that we can go up as champions on Sunday. That'd be that'd be pretty amazing. We'll be getting the guard of honour when uh, West Brom and Brentford lose, and then we'll be <laughs> getting the guard of honour from Derby. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of the podcast. I hope you guys enjoy the game on Sunday. Um, try to enjoy it if you can. Um, I think we're 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 due uh, an enjoyable game with without the pressure that the Stoke game had on it, but uh, without the the sort of franticness that the uh, the Barnsley game had on it. So so do enjoy the game. Um, just the usual housekeeping. We'll be recording a podcast. I think on Sunday night, probably Sunday evening. Um, 
So do catch up with us then. If you like our content and you want to get more of it, you can sign up to our Patreon channel, which has much more bonus material on. And uh, we're trying to get a, a, an episode, a podcast episode out a week, and we're putting other stuff up on there as well all the time. Um, and the the money that you use to subscribe will go towards us being able to get hold of data. And hopefully you've been enjoying the the, da- the uh, data viz that we've been putting out from 23, uh, who we are ambassadors of. Uh, if you haven't seen any of that, just head over to our Twitter at allstatsarm we and you will see some of that data viz over there some people who have signed up to the patreon this week are matt mark worthington and neil merton so thank you guys for joining us um but there's nothing left for me to do now than to say thank you darren thank you very much and thank you joe cheers and we are on the brink we are indeed yes come on deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.